Welcome back to the Warehouse Podcast. I'm Tyler. I'm Jesse. I'm Eli. And guys, we return a week, back-to-back weeks. We have episodes. This is unprecedented. This We're is- hitting our stride, for sure. We're hitting our stride. We are. As we hit our stride, the Orioles keep losing games, but, you know, that doesn't, <laughs> that shouldn't affect our podcast quality. And uh, we should say we're back again with a fourth co-host because I didn't look at my schedule accurately enough. And my wife is working tonight, so I have the child again on the show. So we, he had some takes last time. He's done some research. He's been on fan graphs, baseball reference, boning up. And uh, maybe he can add a little more insight this week than he in, did last in week. In fact, he is the baseball savant. <laughs> <laughs> he is. That's the nickname around the, around these parts. He is always... I put him on the ground to roll around and play. And he, if MLB Network's on, he does stop and, and stare at it for a little while. So we're brewing something. Love it. And my wife always tries to put things like in his left hand because I told her like left-handed pitchers, it's easier to make it if you're left-handed. But we're not going to force it. We're not going to force it. But, you know, if it just so happens. You're but, force it. but force it. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can be left-handed and throw like 87 miles an hour and make it in the big leagues. So it could be Jamie Moyer. You could have like a 25-year career. That's what we're going for. Yeah. Pay for mom and dad's vacation home. For sure. I was just thinking about how it's a good thing that our uh, podcast quality does not mirror the Orioles uh, play quality. You know, I feel like that's a really good thing uh, because we'd be not probably not worth listening to. So, well, I mean, it'd be an interesting thing to chart, but I'm not sure what you would (laughs) use to gauge quality of the podcast. (laughs) True. There's we don't have a win and loss record. Yeah, it's just consistently low quality. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so this week we think is going to be quicker than past weeks. We'll see. We're saying that now, and you're probably now staring at your phone with like an hour and thirty minute long podcast ahead of you. But we're going to try and keep it brief. Um, you know, we've got a retirement to discuss. The Orioles have made some moves throughout the week, um, and we've got some developments on the pitching front, good and bad. Um, so I, I guess let's kick it off with something that kind of hits close to home for all of us. Uh, Nick Markakis, longtime Oriole, short-time Brave, three-time Gold Glover, has now retired from baseball. He announced it. Apparently he knew uh, after the NLCS he was going to retire, but just told no one until he let Dan Connolly of The Athletic know last week. Like, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm retiring. Um, so I don't know, guys. <laughs> uh Markakis was a great Oriole. You know, do you guys want to kind of speak on him for a little bit and sort of your memories, your takeaways, and, and you know, how he's going to be remembered? Eli, maybe, do you want to go first and, and discuss Markakis yeah. a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, I threw this out uh, on our podcast Twitter account, and uh, something pretty cool, you know, Markakis actually lived pretty near to where we went to high school. Uh, and so, you know, we would go in for off-season workouts over the winter and he would be throwing in the gym with our coach. He did his off-season throwing program with our high school coach. Um, I remember one time, this will always, always remain in my mind as a uh, crowning achievement of my baseball career. And that was, I was playing catch with somebody alongside Nick Markakis and he threw a ball away and I did not throughout the course of the throwing session. So pretty much, unequivocally I'm a better player than he ever was and that's all I have to say Uh, (laughs) no but on on a serious note uh, you know there are a lot of memories with him he obviously was a stalwart a staple of um, you know of who the Orioles were and uh, part of that 
the thing that stuck out to me, one of the coolest slogans for a duo in the MLB was that 2110 Utah Street with him and Adam Jones always holding down center and right field for years and years in Baltimore. Um, and it, it's just kind of, you know, that was consistently good defense. They were both pretty high level at, uh, offensive performers. And, you know, that was like the pinnacle of the Orioles as far as I've seen in my lifetime. So yeah, a lot of love for Nick Markakis and all the best to him in retirement. Yeah, that's uh, Jesse. Do you want to give your thoughts real quick? Yeah, I mean, I guess you know what I'll remember him for. Obviously, I'll remember the three home run game he had, like in maybe his rookie season or his second season in the majors. Um, that game will always stick with me. Um, but mainly, I think he should just remember be remembered for his consistency, his reliability, and his durability. Um, he was. Uh, our right fielder basically every day for years and years and years. And uh, there was no doubt about uh, him being out there and uh, him hitting in the two spot or the one spot on occasion. Um, So yeah, uh, I mean, that that's uh, mainly how I think about him. He had a really long career, um, you know, a major league career. um, So you know, he was fortunate and lucky in that way. Um, of course, I also remember just his patience at the plate, how willing he was to draw walks, which, um, you know, as a fan, uh, I love to see in a baseball player, uh, somebody who can walk, uh, kind of the Billy Bean playbook uh, that I'm thinking about. Um, but then also, you know, he was with us on some really, really bad Oriole teams. And it was kind of unfortunate because there was the one year uh, when we made the ALCS, I think, where he had broken his hand, getting hit on a pitch, uh, you know, up up and in, basically. I forget who the pitcher was, but um, he'd broken his hand and not been able to play with us, uh, like in the playoffs. And he did have a couple, I think he did play in a few postseason games with us while he was here, but, um, and I guess he kind of got, uh, you know, more or less rewarded for being patient with the Orioles. I mean, not that, you know, he had a lot of control over a lot of the decision-making. He kind of had to be patient with us, but, you know, he, he put effort in. It was clear that he was putting effort, uh, you know, even while the Orioles were terrible around him. And then he got to see a few postseason games at the end of his career with us. And then, of course, he went to the Braves and saw some more postseason baseball. So um, it, I'm, I'm happy that uh, it's always disappointing to me when someone has a long career and never gets to play in the postseason, mainly Felix Hernandez I'm thinking of. Uh, but, uh, so it's fortunate that he was able to, um, be in the playoffs and, um, yeah, I mean, uh, Baltimore Oreo fans will definitely remember him for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I tweeted out that, uh, he was, I think one of the best Orioles of the 21st century so far. I mean, obviously that includes a lot of losing at the very beginning, but you know, we've also had players like Manny Machado, Adam Jones, Brian Roberts. I think Marquecas is right there in that tier, maybe not as talented as some of those guys, but as far as production in an Orioles uniform, I think you can mention him in the same breath. 
Um, you know, I think he's a definite Orioles team Hall of Famer. Uh, whenever the time comes, they determine that that's something they want to do. Um, you know, it'd be kind of cool if he went in the same time as Adam Jones, because like Eli was saying, they had such a partnership for such a long time. Um, but yeah, Marquecas, uh, he was having a really good season in 2012 when the Orioles made the wild card game, but then it was actually CC Sabathia, I believe, that mm-hmm. hit him, uh, broke his wrist. It wasn't intentional, just one of those things that happens in baseball and unfortunately he missed out on that playoff run but then he was healthy uh when it seemed like everybody else was was hurt uh during the 2014 run when the O's went to the ALCS so and and I remember Marquegas's kind of uh like reaction on the night the Orioles clinched the AL East against the Blue Jays they had like that shot of him like looking up when I guess it was Ryan Wagner announced like the Orioles are AL East champions he was like so proud because you know this is the only franchise he ever knew they drafted him brought him up through the system. They were so bad, like you were saying, Jesse. And then finally, in what would prove to be his final season with the Orioles, he breaks through and makes, you know, is going to make a playoff appearance himself, win a division, you know, everything you want to go for. Um, So no, I think Marquecas, he was one of those guys understated, you know, not the best interview, not the most entertaining guy (laughs) personality wise, but played a good right field, won a couple gold gloves, a good reliable bat in the lineup. And you know, the Orioles definitely got the best years out of him. He was not as productive with the Braves as he was with the Orioles. The Orioles gave him a big extension at one point. You know, just everything you kind of want in a player to maybe not necessarily build your franchise around, but a guy that is going to help you win baseball games. So it's a bummer to see him go, but good career, Nick. And hopefully we'll see you back at Camden Yards for a ceremony here in the next couple of years. All right. Anything else to add on Nick Marcakis before we kind of move on? No, I mean, I, I, well, yeah, I guess I, you know, I was thinking about how, um, you know, you mentioned kind of the personality thing, uh, about him and he was definitely a more reserved player. Um, but it seems like he didn't, you know, cause any problems, uh, in the, in the clubhouse, there weren't a lot of players that had took exception to Nick Marquez or had big problems with him. So um, he was definitely someone who just kind of showed up to work every day, did his thing, and uh, was good at it. Yeah, one little stats note just to throw on top of that. Jesse mentioned him being willing to draw a walk. Career 357 OBP, so like definitely a great table setter throughout his entire career. Um, he finished with almost 2,400 hits. You know, like the body of work he put together is uh, most definitely impressive. Yeah, and should mention, like, he he did end up making an All-Star game when he was with the Braves, but kind of a, an annual uh, All-Star snub during his early years with the Orioles. I think, I forget what year it was, maybe 2008. He, like, led all AL players in offensive war and didn't make the All-Star game. Um, you know, he just kind of was one of those guys who was really good, but on the Orioles, a bad team at the time, and kind of went under the radar. So he'll have, I'm sure, an equally understated uh post-playing career I don't expect him to be he's not going to be a play-by-play guy or a color commentator but I would imagine you know he'll be hunting a lot and just hanging out with his kids I think I saw in the um in the the Dan Connolly piece on the athletic he just said that he's going to kind of be a stay-at-home dad now and his wife is working as a personal trainer so that'll be pretty cool so happy retirement Nick you had to bring up the hunting thing. I was I was trying to avoid that to not mention it because that's <laughs> right, one so, thing about him that I don't really like. But. Right on the baseball topic, uh, the year that Tyler was talking about, two thousand eight, uh, five point one offensive WAR, one point eight defensive for a total of seven point four, which is 
crazy by all intents and purposes like borderline mvp caliber and not an all-star yeah yeah not an all-star no mvp votes just kind of one of those guys that you know was really really good and for some reason he's a guy that i mean 2008 doesn't seem that long ago but in sort of like baseball analysis i feel like it's kind of eons ago if nick markakis had his 2008 season now you know he's probably finishing top 10 in the mvp voting just because you know people that care about yeah. that stuff will, will take notice and you know maybe a decade and a half ago that wasn't happening just yet okay well let's talk about current orioles and jesse i'm sorry about the hunting thing i didn't i didn't know that was a hot button thing yeah yeah it's all we right. won't bring it up again yeah <laughs> All right, let's talk about current Orioles, and it's actually the newest Oriole. We talked about him last week, and it became official just this morning, but Michael Franco, that is apparently how you pronounce it, Michael Franco, I did not know that this morning, uh, is an Oriole. It's a major league deal worth $800,000 that I think can raise to $100,000, or I'm sorry, to a million dollars with bonuses, Um, and he actually is going to go right onto the 40-man roster, and the Orioles don't have to do anything drastic. Unfortunately, it's because Hunter Harvey is going on the 60-day IL with an oblique injury, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, but, what you know, we've kind of talked about what we thought about this as a signing last week. None of us were super into it. But how do you think this signing uh, fits with the Orioles right now? Do you think Franco makes the opening day roster? His contract does give the Orioles the ability to send him to the alternate camp to start the year. Uh, Jesse, let's get your take on where you think Franco fits right away with the Orioles. Well, it's, it's interesting because – a lot of the a lot of the uh, knocks I had against him last week, I feel like are part of the reason that we actually signed him. Um, so, uh, honestly, I feel like th- a lot of this is a move about depth, and this will give us somebody who can play third, uh, which we need right now, and it's somebody who, uh, according to Hyde. Uh, will be playing first at least part of the time this year. So um, in a sense, you know, $800,000 for a major league baseball player is, you know, almost nothing for an organization, for a team. Um, my my feelings about the signing have changed a little bit since we've actually done it. Um, I do think there is, you know, there might be an opportunity to flip them at the trade deadline. So I, and because uh, of our need right now at third base, I think actually the signing does make some sense. Um, but yeah, I, he, I think he will make the major league team. I think most of the time he will be our third baseman and um, I, I expect to see him out there. Uh, yeah, I'm right with you. Uh, I think that, it, you know, if he wasn't coming so late into camp, like Tyler mentioned, you know, they worked out that he would accept an assignment to the alternate camp for a couple of weeks to get up to speed. I think that if he wasn't coming so late into camp, you know, we've just got two weeks left till opening day. He undoubtedly would be the opening day third baseman. I think he is a pretty clear cut above Rio Ruiz. I think that Ruiz isn't interesting anymore to the Orioles. Um, and I think that uh, his time is definitely narrowing to say the least. Um, you know, you look, into the future, Ryland Bannon's knocking on the door, Jemai Jones, Taryn Vavra, all these guys can play third base a little bit. Um, all of them were playing third base in spring training. And they even talk about Gunnar Henderson, you know, eventually moving to third base. So I think that nobody's that interested in Rio Ruiz as a long-term prospect. Uh, he was, you know, he was filling in, he served his time. 
I think that Michael Franco is going to do a little bit better. He's going to be a little bit more of a stable offensive production, um, a stable source of offensive production. He's going to probably hit somewhere behind Ryan Mountcastle, provide a little bit of padding for him. And I think all of these are things that definitely appeal to the Orioles and I think will uh, be appreciated throughout the season. Yeah, that, that sounds, uh, that sounds right. I, I'm, I think he does not start the season on the opening day roster um, just because I think it's why else put it in the contract. If, unless, you know, they both parties kind of expect like, yeah, you need more than two weeks to ramp up. Um, so I think Rio still has a little bit of time left. Um, I found it interesting as you kind of pointed out, Jesse, that Brandon Hyde views Michael, Fra- Michael Frank Franco. Sorry, I can't get the name right. I'll just say Franco as a possible first base option, you know, the Orioles have Trey Mancini, they have Ryan Mountcastle. And then if he, if he plays this year, it's kind of up in the air. Chris, Chris Davis, what I would imagine plays some first base. I'm not sure in what scenario I see Michael Franco playing first base. You know, it's nice that he can do it, but I think that, you know, that's not the biggest position of need. So I think the Orioles definitely signed him uh, to play some third base, to give a little bit more of an offensive pop. And, you know, I tweeted out the other day that I think the Orioles offense has a chance to be pretty solid. They were about middle of the pack last year. And I think Franco is a step up slightly from Rio Ruiz. So in that way, I think it makes the Orioles a little bit more fun to watch. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I don't love the move. I I kind of get it. I don't think it was totally necessary. And, you know, if they flip him into some low level prospect at the deadline, cool. I guess you got your your eight hundred thousand dollars worth. But. Um, you know, definitely not in love with it, but, you know, probably not a big deal either way. But talking about Rio Ruiz, you know, what do you guys think this means for Ruiz? I kind of just gave my two cents. I think it at least buys him some time to be on the opening day roster. Uh, Jesse, Eli, you guys seem a little more uh, into the thought that Franco is an obvious immediate upgrade. You know, do you think this takes Rio out of the opening day roster? Do you think it takes him out of the organization? Sort of where does Rio go from here? I, I talked about it a little bit, like with my guys that, you, you know, all of the sort of high minors infield prospects that we do have, I think that this is the beginning of the end for Rio. I, you know, I agree with you. I think Rio is the opening day third baseman, but I think that's a result of Franco not having been going up against live pitching, not having been ramping up. I don't think that's going to be any sort of sign of faith from the Orioles front office, you know, Rio is just the third baseman until Franco comes up and gets to show what he can do. Uh, I, what I can say with a pretty high level of confidence is I think that Rio Ruiz is not on the 2022 Orioles. I'm pretty confident in that. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess I would just add that uh, the Franco signing indicates how the Orioles feel about Ruiz. If, the Orioles were excited about Ruiz. They would have him playing third every day and they probably wouldn't assign Franco. So uh, I think that gives a big indication right there. Yeah. It's kind of interesting that, you know, I would think they view Ruiz even at his best as a stopgap option until the next young player that could potentially be a future piece uh, steps in at third base. And they don't seem to even have 
um, confidence that he can do that, which is, which is interesting. Um, I did see a note earlier. I think it was from Brandon Hyde, maybe Mike Elias. I'm not sure that said there's a scenario in which both Ruiz and Franco are on the roster at the same time, barring any injury. Do you see that as a, a realistic possibility to have both of them on the roster at the same time? Eli, you said no. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, in I don't know, like in the simplest terms, we've got, you know, Mancini and Chris Davis already taking up two infield slots that, you know, if you want to just look at like, maybe there are six infielders on this team, we've already got Mancini and Chris Davis taking up two. If we take two more for the other corner for third base, you know, we're sitting at a situation where we've got two guys to cover all the middle infield positions, which makes no sense whatsoever. Um, And obviously Chris Davis, you know, is going to, have some made up injuries that are going to keep him off the roster for a while. You never really know what's going to happen there, but uh, you know, assuming that he is healthy, he will be on the roster. And I think that it makes no sense whatsoever to carry two guys who are as defensively limiting or limited as those two are. Yeah. I was just going to say that. um, I mean, I I agree with everything you said there. The other important point is that it would leave us with four position players who are bad defensively. So that's the (laughs) other, I think, key element is that um, Ruiz doesn't add much defensively. And we have two first basemen and two third basemen uh, that uh, are not good defensive options. And that's going to be a big long-term problem. And it just really inhibits any flexibility on the infield that the Orioles would have uh, to have both of them you know you need a kind of a utility guy that's going to play second and short or second third and short um, and how are you going to fit everybody you need backup middle infielder uh, if you have Ruiz Franco uh, both there right yeah I, I think that you know, there's there. It makes no sense. I would agree with you guys. The only situation is where Mancini goes down, uh, Mountcastle goes down, and then you need two guys to play the corners, and you don't want to promote anybody. You know, in that situation, sure. I think more. It sounds more like coach speak because they didn't have to get get rid of anybody um, because Hunter Harvey went on the IL, so they can keep them both around. And why would you not say, yeah, of course, both of them can be on the roster at the same time? You know, there's no reason to be negative about it in this moment. So say it that way, but I don't think realistically that that's a possibility. Okay. Let's just make a couple of quick notes on injuries that have happened in camp this week. Um, Richie Martin, who missed all of last year with, I think a left wrist injury is now missing time with a right hand injury. Um, but he is expected to come back to camp in a few days. Um, you know, Martin's chances of making the roster were limited anyway, but do you think with these couple weeks left, Martin's got any shot at making the roster? Uh, Jesse, you're saying no. Uh, yeah, I'm highly skeptical of that. Okay, Eli. Yeah, I mean, the the Orioles' intent was to kind of push him through the year that we took him in the Rule 5 draft and just stash him in the minors to develop. And, of course, last year was all alternate sites. So he hasn't played any time since we had that intention. So I, I think, yeah, he's, a, he starts the year in double A. Yeah. I would make that a clean sweep, you know, hopefully Martin, I think, you know, he's got a skill set that can be interesting to the Orioles down the road as a utility guy. Um, but they've got enough of those guys at the moment that we know can do it and probably do a better job than him. So yeah, just send him to the minors and, and see what he can do at uh, on the infield in, in Norfolk. 
Um, okay, also injured, but more of a chance to make the roster. DJ Stewart, uh, he's back in action this week. Um, do we think DJ Stewart, given everything else going on in camp this week, uh, I'm sorry, recently, um, has a shot at maybe an extra outfield or a DH spot? Maybe uh, Eli will go to you first this time? Yeah, I, I can see him doing it. I, I think it'll be tough, but I, I currently do have him penciled in right now. Uh, he's shown the pop that it you know, is what he needs to show. He already had two home runs and eight at-bats in spring training. So it, that's what the Orioles need to see from him. That's, you know, what he can provide to this team in a potential DH role. Um, so, yeah, I, I've got him making the team if he comes back, you know, and performs fine and is moving around okay on his hamstring. Okay. Jess, any uh, similar or dissimilar thoughts? I, I guess I would just say I'm a little more 50-50 on it. Um, I, I wouldn't... I'm I'm not kind of expecting it, I guess, like Eli is, it sounds like. Um, but I th- I think it's it's definitely possible with how things are shaping out. Yeah, I think that uh the Chris Davis injury situation uh greatly affects DJ Stewart. Uh Chris Davis hasn't played in a game since the twenty eighth of February. It sure sounds like he's headed for a sixty day IL. Um he's still due to see like a back specialist, I believe. And I think DJ Stewart makes this team as well. And I think he sees a decent amount of time as the DH um, with, you know, Mountcastle in left and uh, Trey Mancini at first base. And I- I'm excited about DJ Stewart's bat. And we're going to get into our potential opening day lineups in a bit. And he features uh, in mine. That's a little hint. Hmm. Um, okay. Continuing on the injury path, Hunter Harvey, we already mentioned it earlier. He had no, ob- he has an oblique injury. We know those things are, uh, famously finicky. I remember Wei Yin Chen would have issues with obliques. It felt like every couple months back in the day. Um, but so Harvey's going to be on the 60 day IL that puts him out until mid May at the earliest. I think Hyde said he's really going to be out more likely till the end of May, early June. Um, so, you know, how did this, we talked about the bullpen last week, how it's pretty set and Harvey would was figured to, uh, um, be heavily uh, a part of that setup. Um, you know, who do you think steps into the role that Hunter Harvey was going to fill? Um, and how does the whole bullpen sort of change um, around Harvey? One guy that I've kind of had my eye on and I've been under the radar about it, but I think this is the perfect opportunity for him. Uh, Connor Green, he was a former top 100 prospect, actually. Uh, it's been a while, but I saw him. I had no idea who he was. We signed him as a minor league free agent. Um, the dude throws, you know, mid to upper nineties, you know, with heavy, heavy sink. Uh, he's got, according to a fan graphs article from a couple of years ago, a 55 grade curveball just with terrible, terrible command. Uh, that being said, you know, he's pitched three innings this spring. He's struck out five. He's given up one run, two hits, and he hasn't walked anybody. So, you know, he's got pretty electric stuff. I would say that he's not you know, he's coming in later in games. He's not facing the starting lineups always, but you know, this is the type of guy that can turn into a high leverage arm. And I think the Orioles are probably pretty intrigued by him. I think that Harvey falling out definitely opens up a window for him. That being said, as I talked about last week, uh, I think that Bruce Zimmerman definitely is angling for a role uh, with another injury that we talked about (laughs) that we're going to talk about later. Uh, he might have a better shot in the rotation, but I like the potential of Zimmerman as a swingman type. I think that'd be good in a season. 
in which, you know, last year the MLB leader pitched 84 innings. Um, So they're going to need innings this year as guys are readjusting to full workloads. And I think Zimmerman can provide that. Uh, But Connor Green intrigues me. I I was, I was thinking about, you know, who are back end uh, guys uh, in the bullpen are going to be. And, you know, I'm clearly thinking Tanner Scott is going to be one of the back end guys. It's possible. We'll see how far he makes it, but Cesar Valdez uh, could get some innings at the back end, uh, just like he did last year. And then the other guy I'm looking at is also Dylan Tate. Um, you know, he really has uh, electric stuff. And uh, if he's pitching well, has the ability to be a back end bullpen pitcher. Um so I guess what I'm thinking about is I think one of those three guys are going to be kind of closing the game out uh, most of the time. I think throughout the year uh, it'll rotate between uh, the three of them for the most part, um, depending on who's pitching well, who's hot at the moment. Um, and then, you know, some of the other two guys will kind of be the eighth inning guy or uh but what I think I think the injury does for the Orioles is I think the Harvey inning most of the time is going to end up being replaced by a middle relief pitcher. And, you know, we're going to have to just try to find another middle relief pitcher to bridge us to that eighth or ninth inning rather than being able to set, you know, Tate up in the seventh, Scott up in the eighth and Harvey up in the ninth or something like that. Right. So I think that's what's going to end up happening. And we're, uh, we're going to kind of fill uh, the inning most of the time with a middle relief pitcher. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, just real quick, Tyler, sorry. I wanted to throw out, um, I mean, yeah, Jess and I kind of answered the question from different angles, but I do agree with him. You know, I don't think that there's anybody who's going to specifically replace Hunter Harvey and his current role. You know, like Jesse said, I think folks are going to kind of slot up into higher leverage situations and somebody else is going to replace, you know, a either middle inning relief pitcher or long relief pitcher. And that's the type of guy that I see slotting in, in Hunter Harvey's re- or, uh, roster slot. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, look, you know, I, I think in our perfect scenario, Hunter Harvey's healthy and he is pitching high leverage innings for the Orioles, but he is yet to prove that that's something he can do on a regular basis. He, you know, last year was weird. He appeared in 10 games, which for, you know, even for a relief pitcher, that's probably a little low on a 60 game season. You would have expected him to pitch in 2025. He didn't do that the year before just seven games. And we know he got shut down at the, at the end of 2019. You know, this is a guy that, that gets hurt a lot. That's just sort of how he is. They handle him with kid gloves anyway, and he still gets hurt. So I'm not so sure Brandon Hyde was going into the year saying like, this is my ninth inning or eighth inning guy. Anyway, I think he might've been a guy that, you know, if things pop up, they set up a certain way in the sixth or seventh inning. Maybe you want Harvey to get those outs because you know he's tough to hit against. But I think, like you were saying, Jesse, Tanner Scott's the more likely guy to really be in there at the very end of the game when you really need to get outs because he has the best track record. Cesar Valdez, though, was really good last year, and I think he's definitely making the opening day team as a uh, bullpen option. Um, you know, I think I think your your guy Green is an interesting name. I hadn't really heard much about um, to this point, Eli, but he's had a pretty good spring. Uh, appeared in uh, he's thrown five innings, six strikeouts, uh, point zero uh, point eight WHIP. You know, it's it's relief stuff in spring training, so you know you can't count on it a bunch. But I think that's an interesting thing. 
Um, you know, I, I don't really know who slots in there. I think it might be in a situation where they take an extra type of pitcher that can go multi multiple innings, like a Wade LeBlanc or maybe a Bruce Zimmerman, um, just to see who can handle uh, an MLB lineup a couple of times. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be something like that. It's not going to be a super exciting piece, maybe a LeBlanc or a Zimmerman and, you know, Harvey should be back this year. So I don't think it totally, um, you know, rips apart Hyde's plans for what his bullpen looks like. It's just another unfortunate yet predictable story in the saga of Hunter Harvey's MLB career. I mean, this guy is, is how old is Harvey now? 27. Yeah. I, I was looking, doing some research for this, you know, he was drafted in 2013 in the first round, you know, he was the 22nd pick and he immediately was a top prospect. You know, people loved him. And just the fact of the matter is he hasn't been able to stay healthy. They transitioned him to the bullpen because he couldn't stay healthy and they wanted him to, you know, be throwing less innings and it, yeah, just has not worked. Yeah. He's 26 now. He just turned 26 in, in uh, December, you know, so he's not a young prospect anymore this is kind of when you need to figure stuff out and I think you know his talent is definitely worth keeping around whatever he's going on the 60-day IL but I think we need to kind of shift and say all right this isn't necessarily our closer of the future anymore this is a guy that when he's healthy he's going to be a pretty good relief pitcher and if he becomes something more great but Brandon Hyde the Orioles can't say Hunter Harvey is the guy that's going to give us high leverage innings for the next five or six seasons I just don't think that's something you can you can count on great He's just at this point, he's just not reliable. Can't count on him. I mean, can't count on him being healthy and staying healthy is what I should say. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so uh, in our outline here, I think I'm going to switch. I'm going to bring the Hernandez thing up maybe because he's got hurt. Okay, Um, so let's let's continue on the pitching train here. Pitching injury train. Uh, Felix Hernandez, who we talked about last week, and I think we all, although we had you know, varying concerns about him all settled on the fact that he's going to make the opening day roster. Um, That doesn't appear to be um, likely to happen at this point. Uh, As we recorded this on Tuesday, he uh, pitched today and had a one inning and and looked pretty good, um, but left the game after one inning and is reporting right elbow discomfort, which is like a death sentence sentence for a (laughs) a major league pitcher. Um, they have not uh, released any more information on what his prognosis is going to be, but it doesn't sound great. So, you know, where, where are your heads at on Felix Hernandez right now? Is he still, is this just a bump in the road? He's still going to make the opening day roster. Is this going to be a played out thing that we need to start making plans for? Um, Eli, I feel like you might have more of uh, information here. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest in my, in my notes on the outline here, I just kind of have a frowny face. <laughs> you know, this is kind of disappointing. You know, I've mentioned on here, me and Jesse, our mom is from Seattle. So we grew up, we knew who King Felix was. We watched King Felix. We love King Felix. Uh, I really want to see this dude pitch in black and orange. I want to see him succeed. Uh, but this, uh, it, it's, it's ominous to say the least, you know, right elbow discomfort with somebody who has as many miles on his arm as he does, you know, he broke into the league in I think 2005. So, you know, he's thrown thousands of innings, you know, uh, and he has struggled with injuries. So I definitely, uh, I have a hard time believing that this is going to be just a little bump in the road and we're going to keep on driving and he'll be, you know, a steady contributor this year. Uh, I definitely have some concern. That being said, do I think he makes an appearance for the Orioles this year? Yeah, I still do. Um, And I think 
you know, the fact that he just has the pedigree that he has, the fact that he's been through, had as much success as he has, I think that he still is a value to the team. And I think they will keep him around, if for nothing else, those reasons only. And he will give you innings. Whether they'll be good or not, you never know. But he'll throw. Okay, wow. Over under one appearance. Jess, you want to give your take on it? (laughs) I'll I'll do over. But um, I guess guess what I was just going to say is... it, it it definitely is concerning and a right elbow injury uh like you're saying is not a good uh not a good sign at all um and it was bad enough that they felt like they had to take him out of the game to be safe but right elbow right elbow discomfort that's not it's not I mean, that's what they would say if it was really bad. So I think it's, I just think it's up in the air because discomfort is kind of vague. You know, it could be some discomfort that goes away um, and doesn't amount to being a serious injury. So um, just because discomfort is vague, I'm holding on to some hope that um, the discomfort doesn't turn out to be a big problem and um, he can pitch soon again. So. Yeah, I think this is definitely a guy that wants to go out on his own terms. I think that's probably why he's back for another season. He he knows he's not the pitcher he used to be. I don't think he expects to go out there and strike out 15 guys and go eight innings, but he wants to go out on his own terms, and that would include, you know, pitching until he's quote-unquote not good enough, not because his body broke down on him. So I'm sure he'll do whatever it takes to get back out on the mound, and I don't think the Orioles are going to do anything to necessarily – preclude him from doing that the Orioles don't have a ton of pitching options and I think um you know whatever Felix Hernandez who's 50 percent of what he once was is probably still a better option than a lot of the guys close to the big leagues that the Orioles currently have um so yeah I'll go I'll go he goes over one appearance for the Orioles this year but I don't think that appearance is happening in April or May I think it might be something later down uh later in the season I I mean I guess my thing is like there's a range on what discomfort can mean. Right. right? So you, I feel like you really might be making, it's possible. It's possible not, but it's possible that we're making way too big a deal out of this. Yeah. But by the time that this podcast is released, they said he's going to be reevaluated tomorrow, which is Wednesday, the 17th. So, you know, there probably will be some clarity and we all might, you know, look ridiculous for having said, Oh, he's going to miss time, you know? But uh, for the information we have now, yeah, it's not entirely promising. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's possible. Um, and, you know, he's, he's pitched for so long, like you were saying, Eli. I'm sure he's got all kinds of damage of some kind within his arm. <laughs> um, and I'm sure it flares up from time to time. So it, it could be, you know, not the end of the world. That's true. But we'll see. Something to keep an eye on. All right, let's stay with our pitching conversation and talk about guys that are having a little bit better spring. Um, first is Bruce Zimmerman. He has kind of been the story of camp, I think, for the Orioles so far. He was good again uh, this past weekend against Detroit uh, through four scoreless innings, struck out four and walked two. And now he's, I think he's thrown nine scoreless innings all of spring with 10 strikeouts, a hit, three walks. This is a guy that was was talked about as like a pitchability type kind of a soft tosser, but local guy. So it was a nice story. Um, you know, he's kind of turning heads now. Do you think he's got a legitimate shot to be in the opening day rotation, maybe taking the spot that uh, Hernandez was supposed to have? Uh, Eli? Yeah, I, 
I think it looks good. You, you know, he, I think that stepping into the rotation right off the bat was a difficult thing for him to do just because the Orioles, you know, they went out and they signed these veterans just to fill in time with the expectation that they would give Bruce Zimmerman a little more time to develop along with all the other Michael Bauman, Zach Lothers, Alex Wells. Um, and so, you know, I think just kind of the plan wasn't to have him there. That being said, the addition, well, Felix Hernandez's injury plus Hunter Harvey's injury opens up potential, you know, potentially two spots on the Orioles pitching staff that Bruce Zimmerman can fill. And given the performance, you know, he's been untouchable this year. He's given up one hit in nine innings. He has struck out 10 guys, which as Tyler said, he's a pitchability guy. That's not really what he does, but he's coming out here dealing. And I think it's kind of hard to argue with at this point. You know, the Orioles did bring him up for a little bit last year. So I think the service clock has already been started to an extent. Um, And so service time manipulation might not be quite so much of a consideration with him, especially because I don't think he's quite so much of a high ceiling guy. You know, he's a high floor guy, but not necessarily high ceiling. And so they're not necessarily trying to say, this is somebody we want to keep around for the next, you know, six years at as cheap rates as possible, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that, uh, yeah, I think he's got a shot. I think he's got a good shot. And my current 26 man has Bruce Zimmerman on it. I think he was a dark horse candidate to make the team even before the injuries. Uh, but now I would say it's, it's very likely that he's going to make the team and, and possible that he's going to be in the rotation. Um, yeah. I mean, like you, I said, uh, there's no arguing with the spring training numbers. We all know that, uh, you know, the hitting is not major league level hitting in spring training. Uh, we understand that, but he's clearly pitching well because these are still really good hitters and uh, they're going to hit mistakes and he's clearly not making uh, many mistakes while he's pitching. So I think, I think it's uh, very likely that he's going to make the team. Um, yeah. I mean, I definitely expect him to be like Eli said on the 26 man roster. Do you see him in the pen or the rotation? I, I think the, I think the pen is a safer bet. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so to your point, Jesse, about you know the, the varying levels of competition, you know, on Baseball Reference, they have a metric where you can go look at each player's spring training stats, and they've got a metric called opponent quality, and um, it's basically on a scale of one to ten, and one is an opposing pit, opposing batter is a pitcher, and um, number ten is somebody that played the previous season in the big leagues. And Bruce Zimmerman's current opponent quality is 6.4, which would be somewhere between high A and double A. So, you know, it's, it's yeah. spring training. You got, you can only pitch against the guys that step in the box against you. You know, you can't hand pick who it is, you know, but compared to everybody else that's pitching on the Orioles roster, who's also facing, you know, middling competition, he's pitching better than everybody else on the team. So you know, I, I'm not sure I saw him as a 26 man roster guy before Felix Hernandez, you know, had this injury question that, you know, even if it's not serious and it keeps him out multiple months, it probably puts him on the shelf for a week or two. And then that still probably pushes him beyond opening day as far as getting back on the roster. Um, you know, I think I'll probably stick in general with my rotation of, I think I said means Kramer Aiken, I had Jorge Lopez on there and now it looks like Matt Harvey is kind of 
in the driver's feet for one of those five spots. And I think Zimmerman, it still opens up a spot for Zimmerman to maybe be in the bullpen. And I think maybe it's between him and LeBlanc for who the Orioles prefer as sort of that swingman type that can go multiple innings um, or start for you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's impressed me, not a guy I thought was going to, was going to do something like this, but it's kind of cool. You know, he went, um, he went, what do you go to Calvert hall or where do you go? Loyola? He went to Towson. Towson. Okay. It was in the Towson area. I was close. (laughs) Well, he went to Towson university for a year. I know that. And then then transferred. Yeah. I don't know where it was for high school though. Might've been like Mount St. Mary's. Maybe something like that, but in the Baltimore area and then went to Towson for a year. I think him and I were at Towson at the same time briefly. So small connection um, to the Orioles there, but no, I mean, it's cool. I, I'm excited to, to see him pitch in the big leagues for the Orioles a little bit. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, Looked it up. He went to Loyola. Loyola. Okay. One of those, yeah. one of the Towson area prep schools. Okay, cool. Um, so unless you guys have anything else to add on Zimmerman, we'll move on to the other guy who I just mentioned. Matt Harvey uh, is uh, today. He, Matt Harvey was a guy that I thought he was going to come into camp throwing like low nineties but I know he had revamped his, um, his wind up a little bit, had increased his uh, spin rate. And it looks like he's got some velocity back to sort of, you know, near his dark night days. He touched 96 this week and he sat uh, 94. Um, and his outing wasn't too bad. Four innings, two runs, five hits, a walk and four strikeouts. You know, that'll work. It's not mind boggling, but it's what a four, like four or five ERA, something like that. Um, you know, Jesse, maybe I'll go to you first. What do you think about Matt, Matt Harvey? Is he kind of uh, taking control of his uh, starting pitching destiny? Uh, yeah, I definitely think so. I think that he has to continue to have a good camp. Um, the I will say the 94 and 96 is encouraging, though. Um, it at least demonstrates some competence uh, on his part. And uh, if the velocity is there, uh, you could kind of figure the other stuff out uh, to a, a greater extent. If you don't have the velocity anymore, then it's not just not there. And in that kind of situation, you have to be a really skilled pitcher to try to reinvent yourself, um, which he's probably not at that stage. So the fact that he does have his high velocity um, or does have high velocity at this point um, does encourage confidence um, I think he, it, it, because the Orioles are so thin with the starting pitching, um, I think he does have a, a good shot to be uh, the number five starter. But I do think he he still has to ha- continue to have a good spring um, in order to secure the spot. Because like Tyler was saying, we do have Wade LeBlanc as an option. And uh, I mean, obviously Bruce Zimmerman is an outside option. So um, it's definitely not a a, a, a uh, he can't coast to the number five uh, starting slot, but I think he, he does have a good shot at it at this point. I agree. Okay. Yeah. I, I think he's in there. Um, he definitely, as Tyler said, he went through revamped a bunch of his mechanics. There was a little video on MLB.com about him talking about, you know, how he was going about that. And yeah, to see 94-96 from somebody who hasn't been really a competent pitcher in a couple of years is definitely an encouraging thing. You know, I don't necessarily buy into the notion of him being a super successful MLB pitcher this year. But like Jesse said, you know, you can people always say 
if you, you know, throw 100 miles an hour down the middle, MLB hitters will hit it. That's just not true. You know, velocity plays, you know, it enables you to make some more mistakes. And the fact of the matter is any guy we throw into the rotation is going to have some mistakes. But if Matt Harvey has that extra velo, those extra couple miles an hour that can get up on somebody's hands a little bit better, it's going to play. Um, so, I, yeah, I have him making this rotation undoubtedly. The other thing I was going to say that gives him a big edge, uh, maybe not other than Zimmerman, but over the rest of the guys, is that he's probably a more intriguing pitcher for the Orioles to watch and to have on the major league club uh, than somebody like Wade LeBlanc. Uh, we know what Wade LeBlanc is. Um, and if the if uh, Harvey can at all uh, rekindle any of what he was in the past, that is definitely a lot of value that he can bring to the Orioles, um, most likely in a trade situation. Um, so I definitely think because of the high ceiling that he and the potential that we know is there that is within him, um, I think that makes him uh, definitely more interesting for the Orioles to try to uh, give chances to. Yeah, no, I would agree. Um you know, I, I was not wild about the Harvey signing. It, it wasn't one that I was necessarily disappointed in either. It just kind of was like, oh, here's a guy that'll be a story in spring training. He'll get cut and that'll be the end of it. Um, but no, I mean, looking back at him in 2013, you know, when he was really, really good, he was sitting 96, 97, and that's kind of dipped a mile per hour every year or two. And then in, in the end of 2019, he was sitting 92. Last year, he did get it back up to sitting 93, 94, but he was pretty much horrific last year, if I can recall. So, you know, as we it's not all velocity, but velocity is definitely important and it gives you a little more wiggle room. I think like you were you were saying, I think Pitching Ninja posted some video where it was like every pitch over 100 miles per hour last year. That's exactly it. Well, I think it was every pitch that was tracked to be down within some box. Yeah. And I think almost not all of them, but a lot of them are fouled off. So they're not all swing and misses, but like none of them are hard contact. Right. Um, so, you know, he's not going to hit a hundred, you know, we're not saying that, but velocity gives you a little more wiggle room with your, your uh, pitches. So no, I'm, I'm excited to see it. Um, you know, I, I'm still very worried about the Orioles rotation. I don't think this is going to make him, you know, a three ERA guy. It's his ERA probably is still going to start with a five. <laughs> and it's not going to be pretty all the time, but it'll be a little more interesting than a known commodity like a Wade LeBlanc. Um, I think that's a good, good comparison. Um, yeah, I think we should throw out the disclaimer just as a podcast to everyone listening that any excitement that we have is totally within the scope of this being a podcast about the Orioles. If you go and you compare us to the San Diego Padres or the Los Angeles Dodgers, this rotation is going to be absolutely horrendous. So, you know, like the excitement that we get about Matt Harvey is like, oh, we might have an MLB pitcher rather than, you know, whatever we had comprising two of five slots every day last year. So we'll, uh, yeah, little disclaimer. Yes, thank you for that disclaimer. <laughs> the Orioles did have another round of cuts today. Ryland Bannon, Yuzniel Diaz, Ashton Goudeau. Ryan McKenna, Tyler Nevin, and Taylor Davis all uh, were sent to minor league camp. Uh, any of these guys surprising to you? Jesse saying no. Nothing for me. Yeah, all makes I mean, sense to me too. Yeah. Yeah. Given given 
a combination of where they are in their careers and minor and performance during spring training. Not, not surprising. I thought Gudeau was going to maybe compete a little more for a bullpen spot when they got him on waivers earlier this year, but just didn't happen. So no big deal. All right. And then we want to wrap it up with a little prediction. Uh, we will give you our like full season predictions here, probably in a week or so, maybe, maybe two weeks. Um, but you know, we're going to talk lineups for Camden chat this week. I wrote about the Orioles missing uh, an obvious leadoff candidate for their lineup. And that kind of sparked, I think, Eli to come up with um, what if we just predict what the whole Orioles opening day lineup is going to look like. So how do we want to do this? Do we want to go like one by one around or do we want to start with like the one hole and, and each of us say who's hitting lead off? How do you guys want to, I think it? it makes sense if we announce our entire lineups all the way through, because you know, it, it's going to provide context. And after, you know, we each read our lineup, then we'll be able to comment on, you know, the differences and what we thought and that kind of thing. So I feel like that would make more sense and be more efficient. Okay. So who wants to lead us off in this discussion of lineups? I can go. Okay. Can go Jess, go for it. Okay. So my opening day lineup, uh, I'm going to include the positions too. Um, so Jess, real quick, let's give them the context. We are opening April 1st against the Red Sox and latest word is that Eduardo Rodriguez is going to be the starting pitcher. A lefty, lefty on the mound. Lefty on the mound. Correct. So I didn't uh, fully account for that in my analysis here, but <laughs> I'm just going to um, go with the idea that uh, Brandon Hyde is going to put his typical lineup out there at least most of the time. And uh, I'm just going to assume that. So uh, for me, I have Mullins leading off in center field, uh, batting second. I have Anthony Santander in right. Uh, hitting third, I have Ryan Mountcastle playing left. Fourth, I have Mancini at first. Number five, I have Mike, uh, I have Franco at third base. Uh, six, I have Pedro, Sever- Pedro Severino catching. Seven, and this is uh, maybe one of the more controversial ones, I have Pat Valeka DHing. Um, number eight, I have Freddie Galvis at short, followed by Yolmer Sanchez at second, closing it out. So, uh, <laughs> well, I didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't get that far, but obviously it's going to be means. So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when I, when I, I guess when I was thinking about it, um, I was definitely struggling with who was going to be leading off. Um, I, I initially actually had Mullins hitting nine, but then I'm just like, to me, that doesn't make sense at this point. So I put him first. Um, me and Eli were having a little debate about whether it's going to be Mountcastle hitting three and Mancini four or whether it's going to be Mancini three and then Mountcastle four. Um, and then, yeah, obviously Pat Vileka DHing is also probably a question mark uh, going. De- well, it definitely is a question mark going into the season. Um, but um, I think he probably has the edge in my view. So. Well, so who were the other guys you considered for the DH spot then against Faleka, maybe? Well, yeah, I mean, that was that was part of the problem uh, was, I, I guess, how did I do it? I guess I was thinking about rotating. Like, I had a scenario where, like, Mullins was in left and uh, 
uh, and then uh, Mullins was in left, Hayes was in center, and then rotating the guys around so that uh, Mountcastle would be at first, Mancini would be DHing. So, and then Frank Franco would be at third. So, kind of rotating it like that was kind of how I conceptualized if I didn't have Valleca DHing. Um, but it that just didn't uh, quite make as much sense to me. So, okay, okay, it's it's a very plausible lineup. That is for sure. Uh, Eli, do you have any takes on uh, Jesse's lineup, or do you want to give yours? Yeah, I I, uh, I think that my lineup will give my takes is the best thing I can say. Like, I guess the first thing I'll say is I think the Orioles' best lineup is one in which Austin Hayes is hitting. Um, I think that you know. Pat Vileka is a step down from him. I think that, you know, DJ Stewart is hit or miss, but given the questions on whether he'll be healthy or not and whether he'll be ready, uh, I have Austin Hayes in the lineup over either of those two guys, which Tyler hinted DJ Stewart's going to be the DH in his. But for me, leading off right off the bat, Austin Hayes at DH. I kind of chuckled at the fact that our DH is going to lead off, but I think it's what makes the most sense for me. Um, I kind of struggled with whether, you know, I think the Orioles best defensive alignment is Cedric Mullins in center, Austin Hayes in left, but I thought that there's no way that Ryan Mountcastle gets displaced. So Austin Hayes is DHing. Uh, second, Anthony Santander, Anthony, Anthony Santander in right field. I've got Trey Mancini hitting third, uh, at first base. I think he's too good of a hitter to put him that extra slot down. Uh, I think Jess mentioned potentially giving some padding to Ryan Mountcastle, which is completely valid. Uh, you know, giving him a little bit of a cushion, putting a threat behind him so that they have to make pitches. Um, and that's fair. I just think Mancini's too good of a hitter to drop him that extra slot, take away those at-bats in the lineup. So Mancini's hitting third for me, Ryan Mountcastle hitting fourth and left. Uh, Jesse mentioned Franco, it's Ruiz for me in this situation just because, uh, you know, I anticipated that Franco isn't going to be on the opening day roster because of that little clause they threw in. Um, Pedro Severino catching, Freddie Galvis playing short, Cedric Mullins in center, Yomer Yul- Sanchez at second base, and John Means on the bump as well. Something that, that jumps out to me about yours, Eli, is Ruiz hitting fifth is interesting to me. So, yeah, in front yeah. of Severino. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I went back and forth on the two. The only reason that Ruiz is there is because he's a lefty. Um, and yes, I'm aware we're facing a lefty and Ruiz hits lefties worse. I don't think that Pedro Severino is exactly a force with the bat these days. Uh, he's <laughs> been struggling this spring. And so I think just kind of, you know, balancing lefty righty uh, with Ruiz there, you go Ruiz, a lefty Severino, righty Freddie Galvis, is a switch hitter, Cedric Mullins, lefty, Omer Sanchez. Um, and that was more appealing to me. And neither one of them is going to be producing all too much, you know, so it didn't make a difference. That's my justification there. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. I, I mean, there are times when Ruiz is really hot and Hyde puts him higher up in the order. So it's definitely not, it's not like it's impossible. I think he's hit clean up or third before when he's going really well. So, right. Okay, and then Jesse and you both agree on Sanchez hitting uh, ninth, which is uh, yeah, it's interesting. Okay, 
All right. I guess I can give mine then. Or Jesse, any other takes on Eli's lineup before we move to mine? No, not particularly. Okay. All right. So my lineup, I have Hayes leading off as well. You can go read my, uh, my Camden chat stuff. I don't really come to a conclusion that Hayes is the best option, but I think um, Hayes is the option that Brandon Hyde is going to go to most often. And I do have him starting in center field on opening day. Then I've actually got Ryan Mountcastle hitting second, playing in left. Trey Mancini at first base. Uh, Anthony Santander in right field. DJ Stewart, DHing, hitting fifth. Uh, Pedro Severino behind the plate, batting sixth. Uh, Freddie Galvis at shortstop and batting seventh. Rio Ruiz batting eighth at third base. And Yalmer Sanchez at second base and batting ninth. So <laughs> thoughts, thoughts on that. Yeah, I guess a couple things. One, um, one, I think Santander is going to be the two hitter. Uh, that's well, the yeah, one that's thing. Rather your than, opinion. Yeah, right. Rather than <laughs> rather than Mountcastle, um, Jesse good. steps in and says, "Well, first off, Tyler, you're wrong." <laughs> well, yeah, Jesse, the whole thing here is giving our lineup, so I know you think yes. he's hitting second. You already said yes. that. <laughs> well, that that I mean that that's kind of I mean that's kind of a big, a big distinction in the lineups, right? Like the two, three, right. four hitters being switched around in yours. Um, definitely is a big contrast to me and Eli's. Um, so uh, there was that that stood out to me. And then also uh, you don't have Mullins anywhere in the lineup. So that's also Correct. interesting. So um, even if Hayes is in center, um, which I'm not convinced of, but even if he is uh, there, you know, I still feel like there's an opportunity that Mullins will make his way into the lineup. Um, so playing left. So, uh, yeah. So that's kind of what I was thinking about. Right. Yeah, and, that, and that's, yeah, go ahead, Eli. I was just going to say, that was one thing that was interesting to me. Like I might've mentioned it earlier, but like the Orioles best defensive alignment has Austin Hayes and Cedric Mullins, both in the right. outfield, you know, and Ryan Mountcastle can slot into DH. So for me, where I've got all three of them in the lineup, like baseball wise, it didn't necessarily make sense to have Mount Castle in the outfield. But to me, like the Orioles need to develop him to some kind of defensive value and they want him to be a corner outfielder slash first baseman of the future. So that's why I stuck him out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's fair. I think so. Like my take is that I think my lineup is the deepest offensively because I have Hayes and Stewart in there. I think Eli's is the best defensively because he's got, I don't know. He's got Hayes DHing. So I don't even know if I necessarily Hayes is agree DHing. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if I necessarily even agree with that. Okay. Interesting. But what I will say is for, it's a left-handed pitcher, which does make a difference. I think with Mullins, because I know he's not switch hitting anymore, but even to say, Oh yeah, he's giving up switch hitting and now he's totally fine to hit people from the left hand, a left-handed pitcher from the left side of the plate and, even though it's something he hasn't done in six years, you know? Right. Um, so I still think Mullins sits and I think Mullins finds his way into the game. I think the Orioles are going to take the lead against the Red Sox because the Orioles typically do well on opening day. Not always. I think last year they were, they got destroyed on opening day. Destroyed. Right? Yeah. So against the Red Sox, but typically the Orioles win on opening day. And I think Cedric Mullins comes in as a defensive replacement for Ryan Mountcastle in like the eighth inning. Um, and as far as like the Santander batting fourth and Mountcastle second, I think Mountcastle's a better hitter than Santander. Um, mm. I know Santander had a nice season, but I, I like Mountcastle's bat better. Do, um, do you think he is presently? 
Yeah, I think so. Like currently? Mm -hmm. Yeah, presently, currently. Those are synonyms. I, uh, (laughs) I, uh, I think Mountcastle was a better hitter than Santander. I think Santander had a nice stretch, but he didn't even play like the last, what, 20 games of the season. Um, It was just a really good, like 40 game stretch, which is nice, but I think Mountcastle is a better hitter. Now, you know, that doesn't mean Bryant Brandon Hyde agrees with me or necessarily is going to do that, but um, I just think that going forward, Mountcastle as the two hitter um, in front of Mancini and then Santander is, is nice little uh, uh, security right behind him. So the, the, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say the one other thing about it uh, that I think it, it doesn't play a big role in the equation, but I do preferably like the two hitter to be left-handed. Um, if there is a guy on first base, uh, okay. a lot of, is that surprising? that's just that's that no it's just like it's an interesting way of thinking about it i never even thought about that oh yeah i i mean i feel like it's a pretty common thing just because like it, you know if the leadoff hitter gets on if you have a lefty there that can spray the ball you know that can um you know a lot of holes a lot of possibilities open up on a potential steal hit and run these kinds of things become more possible um, if there's a left-handed hitter up at the plate. So I think like in an ideal lineup, uh, which granted, you know, there are many uh, other factors that are much more influential when thinking about, you know, who should be our two hitter. But I do think uh, having in an ideal, ideal lineup, the two hitter uh, would be a lefty. Hmm. I would think with the shift nowadays, that's almost irrelevant. Because with a left-handed hitter, they can just shift over. You cut down then... so much of the hole. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost but not that being even... said, uh, I should say also in this situation, Jess, like, because there is a left-handed pitcher on the mound, Santander is going to be hitting righty. So oh, that point goes out the window just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. Wow, um, Jesse, your right. life sucks. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> hmm. But uh, DJ Stewart's I, I, hitting second. That 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 wasn't no, but, a, that but wasn't one point to Jesse. Yeah. Like Valeka did hit lefties well, um, and so that becomes a That's little bit more possible. Uh, and okay. yeah, I, I mean, you know, to a fault of mine, Cedric Mullins does not hit lefties well. DJ Stewart, to a fault of Tyler's, does not necessarily <laughs> hit lefties well. So to a fault That's of Jesse, he Jesse, forgot. Yeah. yeah, but Jesse we'll, forgot Anthony Santander hits right. Switch it balances out. I think we're all <laughs> yeah. we're, we're all idiots. <laughs> well, I that was just said yeah. I'm right. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, I mean the thing that I'll say about Santander is like, you know, this is somebody who, even in 2019, like really started to find his stroke. He got really really hot before he got hurt, and again, this is kind of the same thing as 20. I said 2019 before. This is kind of the same thing with 2020. He was really hot until he got hurt. I think that, like, he has the potential to develop into, like, you know, a top 25% of the league hitter. I think he's got – I mean, his batted ball profile numbers are pretty off the charts. He's got consistently high exit velos. Uh, He barrels balls like nobody else on the Orioles does. And – I haven't, you, you know, Mountcastle was phenomenal last year. I haven't quite seen enough of him to fully have that confidence in him that I do have in Santander. Uh, 
you know, Santander is somebody that like the Orioles picked up when he was like 22 years old and just did whatever they could to get him through as a rule five pick and let him develop for a couple of years. And he's only 25 years old right now. And, you know, I think having him as a switch hitter in that two hole is pretty nice. Um, I think that he, yeah, I think he's got the chance to be a really elite performer and not to say that Mount Castle doesn't, but I think that Santander just has more experience with major league pitching. I think that he just has a little bit more of a resume than Mount Castle does. And he got the nod yeah. for me because of that. And that's fair. I mean, like I was looking at their stats last year and they played a similar amount of games. Santander played in 37, Mountcastle played in 35, um, Santander had 165 plate appearance, Mountcastle had 140. So like it's in the same ballpark. Mountcastle's OPS plus was higher. His on-base percentage was higher. Um, Santander's slugging percentage was higher. So I felt, okay, I want Mountcastle higher in the order because he gets on base. I want my better hitters or my hitters that have a better chance to get on base higher on my power guys that maybe don't get on base as much a little lower. And that was my thought. I don't think you can go wrong either way. I think it's, it's a good setup either way. We can't really expect Mount Castle to hit like 340 again. Can we? No, no. I mean, he was definitely overperforming to an extent and like factoring in the sophomore slump, you know, some of these major league pitchers have been able to get some video of him. They've been able to study his swing a little more. Uh, I think there's going to be some regression from that point, whereas I don't yeah. think Santander will necessarily have that. That's fair. That's fair. But, um, okay, so what we'll do with these is we're going to put these together in a nice little social media graphic, and you folks can look at it online. And I think we're going to try and put a poll out. And um, what do you guys – What do you, how do we want to judge uh, success here? Whoever – like people that voted for it or what actually happens in opening day, how are we gauging success of these lineups, I guess? I think well, – First thing is if any single person votes for any one of the lineups, I think they win because okay, yeah, no one's social media it. engagement is pretty low. <laughs> 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 no, I'm just joking. Um, yeah, no, I think I think let's set it up as a poll. You know, see okay. who agrees with us, and I think uh, from the fan perspective, I think that's one win, and I think it's also a win if you actually get it right. So. Okay. And as far as get it right, do we got, we got to get position uh, like field position and lineup position, correct? Or just one, or what do you think? Let's just do like, we can keep it internal. Okay. And we don't have to like relay the points, but just like one point for having the right guy in the right slot in the lineup, one point for having them at the right position or something like that. Okay, cool. So out of 18 points, who does best? All right. So yeah, listeners, what we're going to do is I'll put this together in a cool social media graphic and we'll put a poll out and you just vote for which one either you like the best or you think is most likely to happen. However you determine your voting, um, you know, your vote, your voice. That was the slogan a long time ago, I think. So (laughs) do that. Um, Okay. Anything else to talk about before we get out of here? I'm happy. We did the hour and a half. Yeah, we did. We, well, yeah, and that's <laughs> paired with me paired with me changing diapers in between, and we cut that out. The people won't hear that, but that happened as well. Um, but okay, so follow us on all the social medias at the Warehouse Pod. Um, subscribe to us on your preferred uh, podcast medium. You can also go to Substack or I'm sorry, the Warehouse and you can subscribe to us that way. And what happens there is you'll get an email when our um, our uh, stuff. Uh, posts so it'll go right to your email and you don't have to worry about uh subscribing to a podcast uh network um on that note 
Yeah. When you follow us at the Warehouse Pod, you can see a situation in which one Adam Jones A responded to something we said. <laughs> wow. And B engaged in a like mini two tweet conversation with us. So it was pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, he, we retweeted a lineup card that he was in where he was playing first base and we made a note of it and then he said something to us and we're very proud. Well Jesse's very happy about it. Yeah, he's I'm pretty happy he, too. I won't yeah, lie. It's, it was it's exciting. Cool. It was exciting. It was exciting. So yeah, be like Adam Jones. Go. Don't follow <laughs> us, but just tweet at us randomly. Right? Is that what we're going for? <laughs> Honestly, we'll take whatever we can get. We'll take it. Yeah. The the, the algorithm will then get us followers, please. <laughs> okay, so that was all the stuff about following us on the social medias and the and the podcast stuff. Um, Eli, where can people follow you online if they'd like to? I am at Elijah Ginsburg on Twitter and at Ginzy55 on Instagram. Nice. And Jesse? And people can follow me at Juggernaut8678 on Instagram and on Twitter. Very nice. And I am on both of those as well at underscore Ty Young and over at CamdenChat.com uh, writing the blogs. Um, so, yeah. Guys, anything else to add? No? Nope. All right. Cool. Well, uh, uh, until next time, I'm Tyler. I'm Jesse. I'm Eli. And this has been the Warehouse Podcast.